Less Doing, episode number 77. Ari talks with Jenny Radcliffe, a negotiations expert about social engineering and people hacking. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to this episode. And yes, so this interview this week is with Jenny Radcliffe. It was a really interesting conversation. And uh, I always like when I sort of get to talk to these people who are are not quite in the realm of productivity necessarily. But for this one, it was really about that sort of people hacking thing that she does. And she's someone who can read people very well and nonverbal communication and all that stuff. And it was just a a really fascinating conversation. So I know everyone's going to like it. And uh, Jenny's British accent is definitely pleasant to listen to as well great <laughs> just as felix as is <laughs> <laughs> well i can't wait to hear it yeah well, yeah absolutely a lot better than the sound of my own voice anyway i'm sure <laughs> cool okay so should we um <clears throat> should we go into a review please yes okay <clears throat> so we got a nice itunes review by Ut dear uh title worth a listen found about Ari, I probably found out about Ari Mizell when he guested on another podcast I listened to. Well worth a listen, and we'll pick up his book just to support his work. Decent length interviews with lots of little tricks to streamline your life. Any business owner would gain excellent insight on waste on time wasting practices. I wish my boss would look up his book or listen to his podcast (laughs) that's great yeah that's awesome thank you very much for that and uh we do not have less doing t-shirts anymore but uh if you get in touch with us we i will have some other less doing kind of swag to be able to send out so thank you for that uh we really appreciate it and you know as always if you do get a second to leave us a review it's not just to puff up our egos it really does help us make a better show for you guys because this is your show so thank you thank you yeah Okay, and we have another question about uh, about water flavor, and it's a uh, it's a phone in. So let's have a listen. I was wondering if you could recommend a healthy water flavor enhancer. I really don't like the taste of my tap water. Okay, so this is a cool question actually, uh, and because th- I feel like this is something that comes up pretty commonly. So th- there's there's a couple ways to approach this. You know, he said he doesn't really like the the taste of his tap water, and I don't know where he lives. But this is something that I, I feel like is pretty standard for a lot of people. I mean, I, I grew up in New York City, and I, tap water was actually always really delicious. But I've also spent time living in Philadelphia and up to New York, and th- it's very different. And you know, I'm sure you know, Felix, you've lived around the world. Like, I'm sure you notice, like tap water just tastes very different no matter where you are. Sure, sure. So it may not be that it's bad or that it's not uh, of a certain quality level. It may just be that it doesn't sort of jive with your taste buds. So at the very first level, what I would recommend to the person or what I would suggest is that they maybe try to fix the taste of their tap water. And there's a really great water filter system called the Watts Premier. And we'll have links to this in the show notes, of okay. course. But it's an undercounter <clears throat> water filter. You hook it up yourself. It takes about four minutes to do it. And it just sort of connects into where your, your kitchen faucet might go. And it's going to remove chlorine and lead and all the bad stuff. But it's also going to re- reduce the things that are going to actually cause 
those bad flavors basically because water should have a taste and if you notice things like smart water it's vapor distilled water but then they actually add back in minerals so that it has a taste so it, it should have a taste but it shouldn't have a bad taste so that would be one place to try now if you don't have that option or you don't want to do that you really just want to have better tasting water on the go there's a couple things you can do my my personal favorite and my favorite most refreshing beverage honestly is a, a glass of ice water with a half a lime squeezed into it so personally i i really like okay. that yeah then yeah. the lime is very alkalizing it's very good for you it's got vitamin c it's all these but i just like the flavor of lime um, there are tons of, I mean, you could just do that and squeeze the lime into it. There's a really cool water bottle called the Aqua Zinger. And it's a, it's a portable water bottle like you might take to the gym. But it has this compartment in the bottom with these blades in it and stuff. And basically, you can put anything you want in there. So you could put in uh, strawberries or maybe some ginger or some mint leaves or uh, orange slices or lot, whatever you want. And then you put this in and you sort of twist it and it crushes it up and cuts it up and it infuses it into the water for you. Right in the bottle. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really, really cool way to do it. And then barring that, if you do want to go, I, I wouldn't recommend something like a vitamin water or, you know, something, those kinds of flavored waters, because a lot of them are really not flavored with good stuff. Oh, so right. there's, well, yeah, it, you know, yeah. a lot of them just have chemicals or artificial sweeteners that you really don't want in your body. And there's a great company called Stevita, which makes a Stevia supplement, of course. Mm -hmm. And Stevia being a natural sweetener that actually is not bad for you and is very effective at oh, sweetening really? beverages. Yeah, so it's great. But the Stevita specifically, they have, I think they have like six flavors uh, that are, they have like orange, cherry, uh, strawberry, and maybe one other. They also have a chocolate flavored Stevia which is just amazing. Um, and really? you don't have, yeah, oh yeah, it's so good. And oh, you don't yeah. have to feel bad about putting this stuff in your water. So like a, literally like a little sprinkle of this stuff in a glass of water, like the, the lime flavored one, for instance, and it just, it tastes like a fresca basically, or it's just so good and really, oh, really, really refreshing. Yeah, so I really, I really enjoy that. Um, is there, good. yeah, so I mean, is there, I just, uh, curious for your opinion, like if you were to flavor water, like what kind of flavors well, do I mean, you like? Well, I mean, I was just thinking actually the, the aqua zinger, I mean, I have a similar issue. I mean, I, our water tastes fine. It's just that when there's, um, when I'm feeling a bit hungover, basically, and it's not necessarily because I've been drinking, but I'm just sort of wake up, I feel like I just need, and I'm really, really thirsty, and I just feel rough. Our water just, I find that having a really nice tasting, fresh bottle of water really sorts you out. It really makes you feel better. And our water here just does not do that for me. I have to have something in it, or I have to drink Gatorade, and I don't know if power, you know, drinks like Gatorade or Powerade are those... Would you recommend drinking those or not drinking those? Or? Definitely not. Definitely oh, not. Really. <laughs> Say that as I have a bottle right here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not going to kill you. It's just, it's not, uh, like Gatorade has bromelated uh, oils in it and stuff. And it's not, I mean, yeah, it's it's really not great for you. Yeah, it's, it's not good for your kidneys. It doesn't surprise me. Okay. No. Yeah. But so, so but I mean, flavor-wise. But the Stavita, I mean, but you know what? You did make me think of with this Aquazinger thing. Um, that's the thing that, that chops it up, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, putting some cucumber in, actually, I really like the flavor of that. Yeah, that that's a good one. I didn't even think do. of that. Yeah, so, and I love cucumber water, actually. And, you know, cucumber and, like, a little bit of ginger or cucumber and a little yeah. bit of mint, like, it's actually very, very refreshing. Yeah. And the thing is, it, I mean, the longer it's in there, the more intense the flavor gets very, very quickly, I find. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, absolutely. Now the the Watts Premier water filter. I mean, is that the one that you had in um, when you were in Manhattan? Yes, that's the exact oh, same okay. one. Okay, that same one with three things. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think, we, I think we got that one. I was really impressed with it in, in LA. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, it's a three stage <coughs> filter, and mm. you know each stage basically gets different kinds of things out of it, and and that really is it. Like when you have like bad tasting water, sometimes you're tasting heavy metals or chlorine or things like that. So yeah, that that oh, okay. A lot of times that would do it, but but I also <coughs> I hear what you're saying. You know Excuse about mm. a basically like a regular glass of water from the tap. It tastes fine, but it's not really like satisfying. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I always found this at, u- at university when I woke up hungover from definitely from drinking too much. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had always made sure I had like my mineral water ready for the next morning, you know. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So cool. that, no, that, I think that's a good one. So thanks for the question. Yeah. And uh, thanks for, uh, for calling in. So, OK, Thank so there's you. a few things I wanted to bring up this week, a few links, <laughs> one of which is there, there are these two articles, these two studies well, I, I'm sorry, one study and then an article. So the first study was about uh, the effects of almond consumption on endurance exercise, which I thought was really kind of amazing. But basically <laughs> what they showed was that, uh, and this is, this is, at least in this study, is specific to endurance athletes. But basically what they're showing is that by consuming a certain amount of almonds or you know, sort of a regular uh, feeding of almonds, that it had a really positive effect on blood glucose and oxygenation and the people actually did perform better. So uh, whole almonds basically improved cycling distance, which was kind of crazy. Wow. Uh, yeah. So that. Yeah. it's a, you know, nuts are a really amazing snack. And my favorite nut snack is, although that sounded ridiculous, um, my favorite snack <laughs> in the form of nuts, <laughs> that doesn't sound any better, uh, is uh, a handful of walnuts, uh, honestly. So, uh, but this is really cool. So if you're, if you're training for an event, you know, you may want to, try some almonds but the only thing is of course is that eating dry nuts while you're like running or biking is not necessarily the easiest thing to do so uh, do you have maybe, to do you have to eat them at the time you're 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 running or do you want to like have it for breakfast that morning or is it just have a positive effect in general over um do you know you know what that's a good point uh i'm looking at the study right now actually and it's it's not clear i think it was saying that it was they were consuming them with equal numbers. They consumed the assigned foods for four weeks. No. Oh, okay. So they basically, they consumed the almonds for four weeks straight. And then oh, I they, so I guess it actually has a long-term effect, which is really amazing. Yeah. That's even better. So never mind. <laughs> Although I was going to say, if you want to eat it while you're on the run, then almond butter is a pretty, pretty good snack actually. Yeah. So um, there was also an article from Primal Docs, and uh, Primal Docs is a website with uh, basically doctors who are uh, functional medicine doctors, and they're they're regular doctors, or they're real MDs and stuff, but they sort of understand paleo and nutrition and stuff. It's just kind of an interesting site, but basically there was an article about stress and the autoimmune process, and, you know, as I've I've always talked about how stress was probably the biggest component in, in my Crohn's disease, and when I'm working with people with Crohn's nowadays, it's like, yeah, you know, here's, you can fix an nutrition and the supplements and stuff but there really is this big thing about stress that you really have to deal with and that's difficult but just so i wanted to point out there were some interesting things here that stress really does have an, an actual marked market and measurable effect on your body and you know so for instance like acute stress uh, can cause a rise in cortisol and adrenaline that's not surprising but that suppresses t-cell activity and you know t-cells are kind of like your 
some of your some of your soldiers in your immune system, okay. um, and then and then chronic stress can actually cause adrenal fatigue, uh, which again causes issues with your hormones like cortisol, adrenaline, and norepinephrine, and then T cells just get out of control and you have inflammation, and it's it, so th- this stuff is really measurable. So stress actually does cause real problems. So uh, it's just something it's it's worth yeah. a read if uh, if you're thinking to yourself you know oh you know stress is just stress and. I'll manage it, but it, it does have a, a real effect on your health. No, no doubt about it. Yeah. So uh, there was a really cool site that I found that was like really timely. Um, I'm always, you know, I, I use Facebook mostly for work stuff because I have my mastermind group on there and I have other uh, groups that I follow. But so I'm not on there a lot doing like social browsing, but there's a lot of times when people will share articles and I'll see them. And, you know, as you know, I have all these different ways of capturing information to see it later. But uh, sometimes, you know, you just like a post, uh, you know, you click the like button on Facebook and then you kind of move on. Uh, this website came out, I think it was about a week ago, and it's called Like Manager. Okay. And it's, it's very simple. All it does is it, it just like delicious or uh, pocket or whatever. It collects all of the, the articles and things that you've liked. Oh, cool. um, yeah, so it's actually really helpful because now I, that, that means that it's even a shorter sort of step between me just wanting to check on something later. So I can just like something and move on and like something else and move on. And then I basically get this summary of all the things that I've liked. Oh, that's very handy. Is, then you can, then you can track something you saw and you forgot what it was. And, exactly. Cause yeah. that is one of the issues with Facebook because it's such <clears throat> a, a fire hose of information. You know, you might like something and then seven seconds later you, you can't find it again because yeah, it's moved down quite. the page. Quite. So uh, I thought that was, that was pretty cool. Um, and then, there was uh, there's a nice a site that I am playing around with called privatize.io and it, it's interesting. I'm not sure how big of demand there is for this, but I was thinking of some uses for it. Basically, it allows you to tweet out private links that can only be viewed by the people you mentioned in the tweet. So, really? wow. yeah, so on the one hand, I was like, well, why would you tweet it then? Why don't you just send an email or something? But I was thinking, like, if, if for instance, for, like, less doing stuff, if we had a competition and, you know, somebody won something, then we could basically tweet it out and they could be the only one to be able to access it. Um, but it would still be a public thing being like so-and-so won this competition or they got this, you know, this less doing T-shirt and, you know, find out more here, but they can't actually access it. So, wow, that's like, impressive. Actually. Yeah, it's kind of a neat thing. It's an interesting niche. I don't know oh, where works. they're going with it, but I thought that was kind of cool. Did you have a look at the Gotenna? Uh, no. What okay. is that? Okay, so this is a, it's a Kickstarter project right now, and I think that this is absolutely brilliant. So it's it's um a hundred and let me say it's a hundred and fifty bucks, I think, or no wait, it's. It's 140, yeah, 150 bucks. Okay, so what this is is it's a, it's a little antenna, and it's about the size of a cigar basically, and it connects to your iPhone by Bluetooth. And what it enables you to do is to communicate with anybody else who has a Gotenna, even if you don't have service or signal. So, but, but yeah, for so, how far away? Well, so it, it uses a very low power low frequency and uh, signal. So apparently, it's pretty far. Um, I think it said like, I think it said a mile. Or two miles, maybe. But um, if you think about this, like, for instance, where Felix and I live, there is a a children's museum. And when you go in there, there is no signal at all. So it's kind of an issue if you're there with one kid and your wife or, you know, if they're somewhere else. Or you're in there together and you can't reach each other. This actually would get rid of that problem. Um, Or if you're out hiking or camping with someone and you're out in the woods, then this also solves that issue. Uh, 
in addition, if there are other go, you don't, it doesn't have to be paired with another Gotenna. Basically, anybody around you who has a Gotenna, you can sort of hop off of their network. Wow. So this is, it's an I, interesting I'm idea. It, I'm looking at it on the site right now. Yeah, up to 3.6 miles is like the theoretical oh, wow. range. But then it says like city street to city street would be half to one mile. And yeah, but I mean, you know, sometimes even yeah. 200 feet is what all it takes. Yeah, you know, you, sure. you, you could both be in the basement of, you know, <clears throat> a building and be able to communicate this way. So I, I think it's a really interesting yeah, concept. Uh, and especially for families. Uh, yeah. I think this is, it's really cool. So, you know, if anybody who's like has a go uh, a bug out bag or they're worried about like the end of the world, this might be something to look at. Or if you just have a family that you'd like to be able to communicate with, regardless of that whether or cool. not the yeah. signal. Yeah, so I, I think this is going to do really well. Actually, I'm pretty pretty impressed with with the, what they've created. Mm. So uh, the there I've mentioned that the I've been using the Bedit for a little while now the the sleep tracker and about a week ago they introduced a smart alarm and a lot of other sites or a lot of other apps and uh products have this thing where you know it'll wake you up at the lightest point of your sleep Mm -hmm. so but this really works i mean uh you know because i believe that the bedded is the most accurate sleep tracker i've seen based on how it tracks and so i've been getting up at between basically around 4 30 in the morning for the past week and which I'm actually going to talk about too, but uh, you can basically tell it to wake you up at your latest point of your sleep and it will do it with uh, up to a half an hour before you want to wake up. So I set the alarm for 5 a.m. And the first time I tried this, it woke me up at 4.38 and I it, I was like, it was great. I woke up and I was awake and I was up and I was good. Wow. Um, so it's it's really amazing. I don't know if there's like a placebo effect there, but I mean, the science is there. So it was pretty cool. And then the next day it woke me up at 4.58 or something and the same thing happened. And then the next day it was like 4.32. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing because quite honestly, 15 minutes either way can make the difference between like a good morning and a bad morning. Uh, and it doesn't yeah. mean you can't get over it, but it really does make that difference. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And then the last thing, which I can't really describe, but I, I do want to point people's attention to it. I'd like them to check it out. Is there was a, I put a, an infographic on Instagram, which is, it says what basically what does Crohn's disease feel like? And somebody made this really interesting inf- Instagram uh, explaining it, or sorry, this infographic explaining it. And uh, one of the things that they described was basically like piranhas in your stomach and a, a stampede of rhinoceroses in your uh, large intestines, oh, among yeah. other things. So, uh, just to give people an uh, idea of what it's like. But I, I just thought that it was, I like infographics and I thought this one was really well done. Wow. So uh, with that, I say, let, yeah, well, but it's uh, something that can be overcome. So that's the, that's the most important thing. Oh, and then the last announcement is that I am going to be, this is a little bit in advance, but I'm going to be speaking at the, the at Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Conference, which is uh, in September, I think the 26th to 28th. And it's a uh, conference is open to the public. It's a three-day event. It's going to be really, really cool in LA. And basically, we're going to be playing with and trying out all sorts of different biohacking stuff, including Dave's 40 years of Zen setup, which is uh, that it's basically like a... Um, we're going to electroshock our brains, essentially, to get all this Zen mastery and meditation into our heads very, very quickly. It's it's pretty pretty spacey stuff, and I can't wait to try all of it. So right. uh, the careful. Bulletproof Conference. Yes, I know. Thank you. Um, so with that, let's get to the interview with Jenny Radcliffe. Thanks, Felix. Okay. See you next week.
Now I'm speaking with Jenny Radcliffe, who, among other things, is the first person I've encountered who is referred to or could be referred to as a people hacker. So, Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, hi. It's a pleasure to be here. So, first of all, let's talk about what you do kind of in general for people. Okay. Um, Well, I I do a couple of things. Um, I'm a negotiator, and I do all different types of negotiation. Uh, And into that, I bring psychology, nonverbal communications, but also um, verbal skills um, in order to get people to move from one position to a different position. Um, uh, depending on what that is that could be a corporate negotiation it could be a crisis negotiation Um, but also those skills have an application in security Um, and so we use them to help people uh, reveal some intelligence and that type of thing to give us gaps in a a company's security Okay so I find this just personally incredibly fascinating but how how does one get into that line of work I mean do you have a strong background in psychology? You know, I had a normal career, as it were. Um, I'd always been interested in, I was always interested in doors and locks and keys, whether they be in someone's head or whether it be a real door with a lock and a key. And I was always interested in getting through them or around them or over them or whatever because they were there. But um, no, I had a normal career. I was uh, in supply chain and procurement for big American firms like GE and Rockwell. Uh, and then I was a consultant in the same thing and, and a trainer. And I did just a bunch of training for a decade on all of these types of things. Um, and it's just that in the, in the meantime, I studied verbal communication skills and nonverbal communications and psychology. And I studied them on my own, um, but also with a, a growing community of people who had similar interests. And because of the negotiation skills that I had, I ended up working with some security guys um, going over scripts that they use for crisis negotiations. I mean, I'm not a ninja. I don't do that myself. But I've advised them on how to do and how to improve what they say in those situations and also what to look for um, to recognize hostile intent and those types of things. And then in the end, I just ended up working with them. And whilst they'd be doing physical penetration tests of, of, of facilities, I will be trying to get people to talk to me and to tell me things, which was an easy thing for me to do. And then a few years ago, I realized it had a name. It was called Social Engineering, and a guy called Chris Hagnardy over in the States had written a book on it. And, you know, so that side of it was actually, I, I didn't even realize that this was a job. It was just something I'd always done. Um, so, yeah, normal career and then not so normal, I guess. Okay, so I, I, it must be, I mean, I can imagine it's probably very exciting to, to be able to pull information out of people that they don't necessarily want to give you and get them to do the things you don't think, or they don't think that they want to do necessarily. How, how sort of fundamentally do crisis negotiations differ from business negotiations? Or actually, as a parent, I'm curious how it differs from maybe negotiating with your kids. <laughs> Oh, my God, the kids are the best negotiators in the world. I mean, uh, you know, um, they have no – kids have no filter. There's no 
rules that apply you know as as we grow up and you know we get more experience and we, we become more conscious of our role in society we start to sort of protect our, our what we would call the face the idea of face which is an idea in sort of more uh, eastern cultures like china and japan is much more sort of pronounced idea than than in the states or the uk but kids aren't really bothered about that they're not bothered about looking silly or about being persistent so it makes them very good negotiators and when when they focus on something they stay focused you know and the goal the objective is never changes and that makes kids really good negotiators now in terms of the difference between sort of a crisis negotiation or a very high stakes negotiation versus a corporate one it's usually you know obviously a, a crisis negotiation there's more at stake than just money there's more at stake than just someone being embarrassed or wrong and so it differs i guess in that respect well, but, you know, so it's interesting for me because when I, I went to, to the Warden School at the University of Pennsylvania and I took a negotiation class. And one of the big things was that if you, if you didn't, in each individual like exercise, if you did not come to an agreement of some sort, then you automatically got an F for that particular assignment. And I was just of the mindset that I didn't really care about grades so much. I just really, I, I was wanted to learn what I wanted to learn. So in every negotiation that I had, I was, I was willing to walk away. Uh, but I feel like that's not enough in real life. Well, the thing is, if you can walk away and resort to something, if you can't agree something that day, even if all you agree is to move on to something else, because some things are very complicated, they take a lot of time, political negotiations, you may only agree one small thing, and that might just be to meet again and to keep talking. If you, if you, you know, if you can't agree those things, you have to resort to uh, what they call a batna, which is the best alternative that you have. Um, now, if you can walk away and you have a halfway decent batna, then you tend to be in quite a strong position. But one of the key skills to find out where the power lies in negotiations is to work out what you would do, as in one party, what you would do if you can't agree, what you, what you personally can do. Um, if you can't agree this today, if you do walk away, what do you got? What is the best situation that you have? But also, what's the worst situation that you could have? But the thing that people don't always do is then you have to kind of estimate that for the other side. You have to make informed assumptions. And what that does a lot of the time is just redress the balance of power. Often, when you look at where people could go if they disagree or they walk away, that gives you a better idea of who's really holding the most power in that situation. And then you can work from a better standpoint. So that's what I would say on that one. Okay. Well, so that, that, that sort of well, one thing that I had written down that I really wanted to ask you about, and it relates to that, and this is going to be obscure for a lot of my listeners, but are you familiar with the show or were, were you familiar with the show Golden Balls? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, so for the Americans listening who may not have ever heard of this, it's a really kind of fascinating show, but basically uh, there's an amount of money and there's two people and you have a choice. You can either split or steal. And if you both decide to split, you split. If you both decide to steal, nobody gets anything. And if one person decides to split and the other decides to steal, uh, the person who steals gets everything. And you're basically negotiating with that person. So that's a very controlled situation, I feel like. But, and, and it brings out the worst in people in some cases, those kinds of negotiations. Oh, do you know what, though? That's for, on that show, that's for some considerable money. Isn't it? It's for a big yeah. price. 
just, but you know, I run lots of workshops on negotiation, advanced negotiation skills. And sometimes I do the exercise and there is no prize money. There's no prize at all. And people still take the opportunity to go in there and lie and cheat and just be down and dirty. And I tell you what it is or partly what it is. Most people who know about negotiation have heard about the theory of win-win, you know, win-win and win-lose. Yeah. Um, and obviously it sounds as if win-win is the most optimal outcome. You know, everybody gets uh, to get something and we should go for a win-win. But there is a psychological problem with that whole win-win. And this is the problem. That is the language of the sports field. It's the language of the courtroom. And, and often you don't feel like you've won unless you see the other party lose. Like you want to see a bit of pain. And we are very competitive. And this goes across all cultures. I've taught people from all over. And we just, there's just something in us that says, this is a competitive situation and I'm going to go for it. And, and that's really a problem right there is people try anything to, to get through it. It's really, even if I've given classes for a day or so on, on, you know, this isn't the right situation. You're looking at objective driven uh, bargaining and just go for, you know, go for the best outcome you can find. There's something in us that, that sort of denies us that a little bit. It's, it's very, it's very, it's very funny to watch sometimes the things people will come up with when there's no prize. They just, it's just ego, you know? Well, that so that makes me actually think of, of arguing between spouses, you know, <laughs> because <laughs> it, there really isn't a prize in the end. And one person is usually going to feel bad and the other person is going to feel, you know, maybe better for a minute, but then they'll probably feel bad too. So that's, that's <laughs> right. Well, right. But, you know, one of the things that Cialdini found out, Robert Cialdini in his book Influence, he said, you know, if people commit to something, if you commit to something, especially in public, if you say this is how you feel, this is the stand that you're taking, you're very, very unlikely to go back on that position. And then, the, if, you, if you know, there's a cognitive bias, which I think it's called the irrational commitment bias, which says that the more time and effort, let alone money, you know, but the more time and effort and energy that you put into an opinion and you spend defending it, the more unlikely you are to admit that you're wrong because you've already invested all that, all that sort of uh, energy into something. It's very difficult then for us to go back and admit, oh, well, well actually, you might be right. Um, it's a little bit of a blind spot, I guess, in all of us. <laughs> well, yeah, because then your brain is basically going to say to yourself, well, you know, you've spent all this time, so it must be right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and you know, we all think that we're cleverer and smarter and funnier and better looking than everyone else. You know, these are just the ways our brain is kind of wired sometimes. It all sounds very depressing all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let, let's switch a little bit then. Well, just a slightly bit. Let, let's talk about people hacking. I, just, I love the term basically already. So what does is, what is people hacking really entail? What people hacking is about, I guess there was a, I, I do quite a few of these interviews in the UK and there was a, a partner I worked with, a journalist, and she's like, oh, you're, you're a people hacker, aren't you? You can like, you can hack someone's brain. And the truth is, you know, you, nobody can really do that. But if you have this, this, you know, if you've got really good nonverbal communication skills, you know, if you can look at the emotions that come up on people's faces, which is something that can be trained, 
if you learn to really watch people acutely, you know, we don't really observe as well as we should observe. And I think it was Sherlock Holmes who said, you know, you see, but you don't observe. You have to learn to really watch people, look at the way they dress, look at the way they sit, look at the things that they they hold and that they carry with them, look at their tattoos. If you start to really look at people in that way and then learn some psychology, learn that people are motivated towards and away from things, Learn that people, um, if you know, there are basic sets of behaviour that we all have, and you can look at those things. When you really learn to do all of that, and then to speak very clearly and, and say sort of sentences that people have trouble sort of unraveling, it becomes as if you're a people hacker because suddenly it's quite easy, or it's easier than than it would be without those skills to sort of predict and manipulate people's behaviour. Now, that doesn't sound like a very nice thing to do. But I would, but I'm on the side of the good guys, you know. So, so for me, I would do it to show that it could be done, and then through training, we try and arm organisations or people against what's happening to them, or what could happen by people who've also got those skills, but also have malicious intent. Sure. So, are there are there things that even really well trained people like just there's no, nobody can hide this particular thing? I mean, th- what I'm thinking of is that. Um, I recently heard this guy speak who was the head of security for a casino. And he was saying, he's like, people, you know, they practice their facial expressions, their hands. He's like, but the feet never lie, you know, and you'll have people like shaking their foot or going from side to side. Like, are there things that you see that just nobody can hide? You know what the problem is? It's, it, it, it's, you're, you're, you, we can all control to a certain degree our facial expressions and our body language. To a certain degree, you can control it. But not for a long time. And, mm-hmm. and, and what happens is, um, it, it's a very un, you would if you were controlling your feet and your hands and, and your face and being really careful not to give anything away, you would probably knock out some of your fine motor skills a little bit and become a little bit stiffer. Uh-huh. And that in itself would give away that something was happening that wasn't natural. But um, you, it's some people are more expressive than others. And some people are um, much more difficult to read. Even some cultures are more difficult to read. Um, a lot of Asian faces, um, you know, Asian people just through their culture, um, but also a little bit to do with the anatomy of the face, tend to be a little bit stiller than Westerners um, in the muscle movements on the face. But, you know, we work across the voice as well and across the words people say, the vocal pitch, the verbalizations, and just years of experience of watching people. It'd be very difficult to consistently conceal what's going on cognitively and emotionally because those are the signals that come from the oldest part of the brain, um, deep, deep inside the brain, that really are there to, 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 um, to keep you well. They're survival skills. And given that that's the case, um, sooner or later you slip. Some people, some people are just naturally good at controlling them, but I've never seen anyone who, who, who over time, and certainly under the, the right amount of pressure, um, wouldn't start to leak some clues about what was truly happening cognitively. So uh, you must be very patient. <laughs> God, no, I'm the, I'm the least patient person in the universe. But in work... You know, it's fascinating because when you watch someone that carefully, like I said, I'm fascinated with the idea of a lock and a key and you can watch someone that carefully and you'll see something, some little thing in the room and the lighting in the room, or you'll see just something in their, in their face light up and you can connect it and you think, ah, oh, that was it. That was your key. You know, you were locked. 
And then there was this little thing and it changed and something changed. And it's that change that I'd observe. And if I was questioning them or talking to them, it's that that I'd push on, you know. But it's a, it's a subtle thing, you know. You can't, you can't go in too heavily, really. Uh, so th- this may not be a question that you can really answer very, uh, the way I'm going to pose it, but if you're interviewing somebody, for instance, and, and I don't mean necessarily like a criminal or something in a really bad situation, but is is there like if you could ask one question, you know, that would give you an enormous amount of information, or you know, maybe throw somebody off their game a little bit? Do you do you have something in mind that you can think of? <laughs> well, yes, I, I'm just I'm, I'm laughing because I do remember a situation which I'll kind of paraphrase a little bit but i um i was asked by uh, an organization to give an opinion on someone and and i was interviewing them and i was undecided as, as to what this person really was you know i could i could see there, there was something not right and you know and and they were lying to me all the time but i couldn't quite put my finger on it and the questions to ask that are really difficult to lie about and reveal the person are questions about feelings. Um, you know, it's very difficult to lie and mimic body language and facial expressions and voice about feelings. So the one question to ask um, or the question cluster to ask to really get someone to open is, is is about feelings. So how did you feel about that situation? Or, you know, did you, you know, this particular situation, um, I, I sense that the person had a problem with hierarchy and with authority, they hated authority. And I and I said to her, so um, who's your boss? You know, oh, this. I said, and so, you know, do you like him? Yeah, he's all right. Tell me a bit more about that. And it's, it's a question and techniques, knowing different questions to ask. And there's certain questions that will open someone up. And then there's certain questions that will close someone down. And just to say to someone, what else? It, right, it's sometimes right. enough to just keep them going and talking. Well, okay, but but so then you know, and that that makes total sense actually, uh, especially if you're dealing with people who might be somewhat psychopathic. Um, exactly, you want to get them off script, yeah. right? To get people off script because then what they say to you is more stream of consciousness, and within the words is the the truth of how people really feel is in the words. You know, the non-verbals are great, and and I love them, and it's my field, and I've loved it forever, but. If you can make, if someone can just talk unscripted within that language, is everything you need to know. And if you have some film of them as well, or you're watching them as well, it's very rich in terms of data. And what are what are what are some of the common I don't know tells that you see with people? You know, what, I don't know, shaky hands or you know, scrunching the nose or something like. What what are the what are like the, for the untrained person? Okay. Well, the first thing you need to know is that you can't conclude. So you can't see someone scratch their nose and say, ah, that's a psychopath. Right. What you're doing is you're collecting data and you're linking it to the context because someone could like scratch their eyes, but they might just have itchy contact. Right. So um, it's Occam's razor. The most obvious explanation, the absence of other data is probably the right one. But um the other thing to remember is everyone's an individual. So sometimes people, some people sit with their arms folded. Some people just like to sit that way. Um, and yet people often think that that means they're defensive. But what I would say is forget forget all the kind of common 
myths about body language, about eye contact and and those types of things, because there's very little research to support things like eye contact or folding the arms and those types of things. But what you do look for is a change in their normal behavior. So one of the things to do is to look for a baseline for somebody. So is this person normally quite animated? Um, Do they sit quite close to people? Do they talk a lot? And then you're looking for something to change in that normal behavior. So you get a baseline um, and then you're looking for the switch from baseline into something different. And it's in that change, uh, you know, that change will be in response to something. And then it's, and then what I would do is I would use some questioning to, to find out what that was. But we have to be very careful uh, not to conclude. I mean, there are a few bloggers um, and certainly people on Twitter who are supposedly body language experts and they comment on cases in the news. So they're commenting right now on Oscar Pistorius. There's, there's some commentary on Michael Jackson and, and things like that. And the problem that you have is you could influence juries or police. Uh, you can certainly influence the press. Um, and if you don't have ground truth, that's very dangerous. So, so you've got to approach it scientifically and say, this is an individual um, and their behaviour could mean a number of things, you know. I don't, I don't know if that answered your question, but we have to be very careful. No, no, that, that, that does absolutely answer the question. Um, so do you, have a, do you ever have trouble like turning this skill of yours off, like when you're with your friends or, you know, dating? Or <laughs> Oh, well, the thing is, once you, ne- once you learn it, you can't unlearn it. Yeah. Although you can, although you can be um, much, you can, you can have different, I find anyway, I can have different levels of focus. So if I was working, um, I focus very particularly. I meditate a lot before I go into um, a job and, you know, I, try, I'm, I sort of still my mind and I have ways of closing off distractions. But then generally, just normally, um, I see it all the time. I, I, can, I, I, I can see all sorts of things about all sorts of people all the time. And a lot of it, you, you know, you don't want to know. So you just try and ignore it a little bit. And it's funny because people say, did you see, did you see that? when they know what I do. Did you see that guy? Did you see what he did just then? And very often the answer is no, because I just cannot watch everyone to the level that I'm able to all the time, or I would just overload my brain completely. So I try and cut, sort of cut it off by not watching, by reading or something, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, that, 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 that does make sense. But um, you must have used this, though, in personal relationships at some point. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I mean, with the children... Um, as I say, that there's bit, that's kind of a blind spot, really, because it's difficult to read uh, to read them because they play me really well. Um, it's a challenge for them. But, yeah, you know, friends and family, I mean, you know, it, you can see it, but there's, there's times you don't want to see it. Um, and, you know, there's, funny ta- there's times when that's funny and times when there isn't. I mean, my little boy was ill a few years ago and I could see in the doctor's faces and the nurse's faces that it was more serious than they were telling me. Oh Pretty gosh. Um, and he's okay. He's fine. He's fine. But, uh, after the fact, they asked if I was medically trained because they couldn't work out how I knew, you know, that it wasn't this and which was the best option when they gave the, they gave it to me flat and I could see which one they wanted me to say, but they couldn't recommend, they can't recommend in certain situations in the UK. Um, so, so sometimes it comes up like that and you sort of wish you didn't know, because ignorance would be nicer. But also just little things like asking the husband, you know, does my bum look big in this dress? 
And he, and he just goes like, he just says, well, yes, because he can't really, what's the point in lying, really, you know? He's in worse trouble if he lies. So just... <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, but, hmm, okay. Well, so does that lead to less fights or more fights? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. About the same, I would imagine, overall. Well, because then you, you have to take some responsibility in the situation because you're you're so aware that, you know, somebody else might not pick up on that stuff. Well, it, it, you know, it, it kind of does feel a bit that way sometimes. And I do get situations with my business partners and things where they where, where they wonder why I didn't sort of argue something more ferociously or be more tough on somebody. And I think it's just, you know, when you've been observing people to this level for this long, um, you have to kind of chill out a little bit about things because otherwise it just, you would just be constantly analysing and arguing and you have to take, and, and this is one of the things I say, I'm gonna, you know, we've got a bunch of training coming online soon and I do a bunch of training with the UK. Um, but I always say, you know, th- these techniques are really, really powerful techniques and you've really got to use them wisely you know you've got to use them carefully and not manipulatively i think if you do use it manipulatively uh it does get back to you yeah i think people eventually are, are onto that and and sort of they don't perhaps always know why but they, they know they can't trust you so there's a responsibility to use it wisely and, to, and and as i say not to conclude not to not to say to give sweeping statements about people um because you know you will be believed, basically. And, and sometimes, you know, if you don't have ground truth, you shouldn't make that statement, I guess. Sure. So, okay, well, so the last question that I always like to ask on the, on the, the podcast, and I've actually, I've gotten a couple really interesting, I feel like, life lessons out of what you've just talked about. But what are, what are sort of your top three personal tips for, for being more effective? It can be from anything that you've ever learned or done, but the, the top three things that you recommend for people to be more effective Right, you see, speaking to someone who's obsessed with language, I'm thinking, effective how? But I tell you, I, I'm really busy, uh, you know, big family, uh, big job, loads on, and I have to be um, organized to, to get on with things. And, and, and I suppose that's my definition of effective is getting things done. Yep. Um, and I guess the first thing, I, I have an office where I work, and my office has... I can get online, but I have to log on and it logs me out. If I'm not using it after a couple of minutes, I have to log back in and I don't have a landline. I just have the mobile and my sort of the, the, the time I get the most done is when I get up real early. I just throw on some jeans and a, you know, and a t-shirt and I go to that office. I close the door, I put the coffee on and I don't, I don't go online. I don't pick up the phone. I just get it done. I just sit and I write and I, and I get some stuff done. So the first thing I think is a little bit of isolation, mm. sort of a, a focus and just getting rid of the distractions. Um, so, so I have, I have a place where I go, which is a place that I sort of associate with productivity. And I, and I have a little routine when that, when that happens. And I think that sends all kinds of signals that, that you, you're going to work real hard now. I think the second thing, and I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I've even read it that you guys have this, but um, if I really want to, you know, if I'm really pushed for time, I need to accomplish a lot in a short period of time. I will get a very rough calendar. Um, pro- I write. I'm very uh, old-fashioned. I do tend to write things down, but but uh, and I sort of plot every day. This is what I'm going to be doing that day, and I plot that into morning and afternoon, 
um, and I put I write everything down that needs to happen and then I stick to it quite quite closely um, and the third thing to be productive is occasionally to uh, I occasionally stop altogether and sometimes I actually have a nap which is strange or I might walk or I might sleep uh, I might meditate for, for sort of 10 minutes and I and I beat myself up that I'm wasting time doing it but I just have to reboot and uh, and then I can do an 18 hour 20 day but that that comes occasionally when I just have to I just fall asleep so I'll be working really hard the brain just fries and I just sleep and I've slept at so many uncomfortable chairs and desks and hotel rooms and and it's just because uh, need, I guess my head needs a break I'm sure there's nothing new in any of that for you well, I, no, those are, those are those are really good. I, I like the isolation one actually, and it especially makes sense for somebody who sees more than other people see and everybody else. So, uh, <laughs> I, I think those are wonderful. So, uh, Jenny, thank you so much. We're going to have links to all your site and everything in the show notes. But where's the best place for people to find out more about you? Okay, well, the website is um, it's been constantly updated. But if you go to just jennyradcliffe.com, um, and you'll see, uh, you know, there's some news and some blogs and things on there. And we're adding to it all the time because things are real busy over here. Uh, there's going to be some training stuff and, and bits and bobs online, sort of before the end of the year. So um, be on there. Great. Well, thank you. Um, and it was really, really interesting talking to you. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me.